China has three million delivery workers, and they are everywhere. Outside every apartment complex and office building, you see them with their bright windproof jackets and scooters. Chen Guojiang, or Mengzhu, as he is popularly known, was one of them. He worked all sorts of jobs in Beijing food delivery, package delivery, and wholesale logistics. But he also made short videos about life as a delivery worker. He put them on Douyin, the Chinese version of TikTok. He says in this video, delivery workers are people, not robots, but delivery platforms treat us like cogs in the machine. So he tried to organize delivery workers, one of China's fastest-growing groups of gig workers. Here he is in a podcast interview last September about how he was detained for a month for trying to set up a strike. He says they can do everything to arrest you, fix you with a criminal charge, sentence you to years in prison, and you change nothing. So do other delivery workers still dare to complain? Well, I dare. And then, as big annual political meetings kicked off in Beijing this February, he simply disappears. He says, "My son's disappeared. I haven't been able to reach him by phone." He then brings out a police notice. He tells us that three officers from Beijing came all the way to Bijie to give him a notice, saying his son was detained for quote picking quarrels and provoking troubles. That's a catch-all crime commonly used to detain both petty criminals and political activists. But Mengzhu's case is being handled with high-level secrecy. When Mengzhu's friends raised nearly 20,000 U.S. dollars to cover lawyer fees, China State Security quickly contacted them, warning them not to help Mengzhu. Eli Friedman is a professor at Cornell University who studies labor activism in China. He says Mengzhu treaded into dangerous political territory by effectively acting as a union organizer. That is a red line for the Chinese government. They cannot accept an independent trade union or anything that coheres collective power for workers is seen as a threat. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode sixty-four of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And、uh, for for this week's episode, I think we're going to kind of keep with our theme of looking at the like political economy of you know labor and tech, which is a major theme in TMK in general, but in particular, like. Following on from our episodes with Alex, our premium episode last week on Amazon warehouses, right? Like, really focusing more on giving a, giving attention to the actual like labor processes and the worker experiences in digital capitalism. Ah, shit! Here we go again. I want all of you guys, you know. And gals and everyone out there,、um, you know all the lovely listeners、uh, to imagine this episode as a sort of、uh, sort of sequel, you know, spiritual successor to our Huawei episode, to our Chinese antitrust episodes,、uh, another deep dive into undercovered、um, or misunderstood aspects of Chinese political. Uh, economy, uh, because I think you know it's pretty important, especially as the group that we're going to dive into is a sort of introduction and a foundation for analysis today.、Uh, makes the case, you know, China exists as the linchpin of global capitalism, and if we really want to understand, you know, global capitalism in the different ways, different things it manifests, like platform work, right? We would be remiss to not have a clear understanding 
of what's going on in China. And I think that that is largely non-existent in most of the coverage. You know, in fact, it's really only been in the last year or two because of the pandemic that you've started to see some coverage of gig economy work in China or more recently because of this you know, crushing or suppression of trade unions. But also at times, as we've talked about here with our Huawei and Chinese antitrust episodes, the reasons, one of the reasons we did those is because we're uncomfortable with the bent that ends up emerging where it's like, you know, um, being forced to choose between a narrow dichotomy of like supporting every single thing that China does or critiquing it from like this sort of, um, you know, vengeful Cold War 2.0 perspective. So instead, we just want to talk about, you know, what is going on on the ground from a labor perspective, centering, you know, the workers themselves so that we can have a clear understanding, right, of what's going on here. Yeah. And I, and I think the best way to do that is to actually start bringing in some of this really critical but also rigorous analysis situated within China, right, by these, like, you know, Chinese groups. Um, And in particular, right, like, we're focusing now on this uh, collective called Chuang. You know, some of you might be aware of Chuang, but I don't think they've really broken through into, like, the Western uh, kind of like media and commentary sphere in a way that they they really deserve, right? Like, I mean, they're like a relatively new collective, but super, super interesting and, and publishing and producing just like some of the best analysis um, of China, right? From this very, from this like leftist, anti-capitalist, communist kind of perspective, but doing so in that like long tradition of rigorous, ruthless analysis of the existing order and doing so, you know, with an idea of understanding what's happening in China, you know, as this like capitalism with Chinese characteristics, right? And as a place that like you know, yeah, you you cannot you cannot make like these broad gesturing generalizations about, but instead you have to understand the processes, you know, both on the ground with labor, the experiences of work, but also in like a broader kind of structural sense. And I think Chuang is doing that in a way that like nobody else is doing right now. Right. You know, and I think one really interesting place to look at first is with the opening editorial for their first issue, right? Where they do what they end up also doing in the next issue editorial, but they try to look first to the past to try to offer an explanation for some tradition or some practice that gives insight into a metaphor or a frame of analysis that it might be useful when looking at China today, right? So they open up with um, looking back at the Qing dynasty, uh, specifically this practice that, you know, when translated is known as transporting a corpse over a thousand li, right? And this is you know, there's a practice where okay, you would have you had at the time in the you know in the waning days of this dynasty, um, peasant massive peasant migration to port cities where you know workers would be engaged in really grueling labor, um, and if they were to die in the port city, then they would be shipped back home. But to get them back home, families would have to spend all of their remittances. I can never pronounce this word. Remittances. Remittances. <laughs> Remittance. 
remit remittances uh remittances podcasting <laughs> um, is fucking hard y'all <laughs> on all of this right and so you know you, they spend all their remittances on shipping the body back home and in the process there was this sort of really complex ceremony where the corpse would be reanimated essentially right and made to look as if it were moving around Bells were rung to distract people from looking at the corpse. It would be bad luck if you did. And then that tradition grows into this myth, this mythos of vampire-like creatures. And they point to that when thinking about how, okay, you know, the factories, the the cities suck away the, the lifeblood of, you know, the countryside so that they can grow further and they steal away, you know, the migrants and they kill them and then they send them back as corpses that are kind of reanimated, right? And, uh, you know, there's this one quote where they go on and say, these migrant workers were transformed into monsters befitting a new reality, one of crumbling empires, civil wars, and the insatiable expansion of commodities. So Chuang goes on to build this idea of the dead becoming the living, right? That the stiff-limbed dead walked from their factories traversed countries torn by war, famine, and other unnameable sufferings to finally settle amongst their kin in the dust of their homeland, a rural world that had only just caught sight of its approaching oblivion. You know, for Chuang, I think that encapsulates a sort of diagnosis or perspective on China today, right? An idea where the old world's dying, but specifically the countryside where hundreds of millions of workers are as they put it, stuck between a present past and some future that's not been born yet because of decades of staggering economic growth, credit bubbles, a development regime that has created wastelands of apartment complexes, of half-empty factory cities, of fewer workers, of more machines that are unmanned. Um, and despite all of this happening, you know, a sort of elites still enjoying luxury and comfort while the migrants are doomed to perpetual precarity. And that this is going on, and as the growth rates dwindle, right, and as the development regime regime uh, stutters, you know, the country is uh, nonetheless moving forward, much like these corpses from these uh, from this tradition, from this practice, where they're moving forward, moved by some undead mechanical momentum, right? The workers are laid off; they have nowhere to go. Rural communities are giving up their land for a fraction of the the condos that are built on them, right? Losing their value to a currency that's then inflating, landscapes being privatized and poisoned by industrial expansion, urban centers that are succumbing to man-made mudslides, earthquakes, chemicals, explosions, riots, strikes. I mean, all of this, they say, speaks to a disintegration and that nothing is being left for the future generations uh, except dead generations, right, that are all unified by their separation and shambling through fire into dust. And so as communists, they see this and they condemn it. And they and they and they're the question for them is like, how did it get to this point? Um and how do we get out of this uh this moment, this juncture? How can we how can an, a better understanding of China today lead us to get out of it? to avoid it, to learn from the mistakes, to better understand class conflict, to also better understand the role that China plays in the global production of you know, commodities, of raw materials, of uh, capital flows, of labor flows, and in general, like the underpinning, the, uh, serving as a linchpin of the capitalist system. 
And I think that's all really, I think that's, I mean, that, that, that's all super interesting. It's a super interesting perspective on it. And I think we have to be clear as well, right? Where we're, when we're like saying, you know, Chuang is this, you know, communist collective doing this kind of rigorous analysis, you know, people might be like, oh, I mean, like China's a communist state, right? Like it's ruled by like the, you know, the Chinese communist party. Like, uh, so how is this any different than, you know, than like, you know, how is Chong any different than Xi Jinping? How is Chong the collective any different than this, the communist party, the party, right? And I think that they're quite clear about this um, in terms of, you know, like it, it, they, the way they describe it is that, um, as they say, quote, over the past three decades, China has transformed from an isolated state planned economy into an integrated hub of capitalist production. Waves of new investment are reshaping and deepening China's contradictions, creating billionaires like Ma Yun, while the, while the millions below, those who farm, cook, clean, and assemble this electronic infrastructure, struggle to escape fates of endless, grueling work. But as China's wealthy feast ever more lavishly, the poor have begun to batter down the gates to the banquet hall. You know, and, and the way that they describe it, like the meaning of Chuang, this, you know, name they've taken for themselves is defined as the image of a horse breaking through a gate, right? It means to break free, to attack, to charge. And that's what they, that's what they see it, right? Like, like Chuang is what they see as a, they're naming as a movement, right? A sudden movement. Um, when, as they put it, the gate is broken and the possibilities for a new world emerge beyond it. I think this is really important to keep in mind, right? This is what they, this is the kind of communism they mean, right? Not this like, you know, state capitalism, but really uh, a, a communism from the point of view of the proletariat from and, and seeing it as this kind of uprising. I, I'm seeing a lot of like um, echoes of Gramsci, in their descriptions and in their in their uh, analysis as well, right? Like even what you what you were were referring to, Ed, as well. It reminds me of that quote from Gramsci, right? Where it's like the the old world is dying and the new one is struggling to be born free. Now is the time of monsters. You know, shout out to Aaron Thorpe. You know, and and I think that's what Chuang is saying as well, right? Now the new world is struggling to break free. It is struggling to emerge. And now is the time of monsters. And, and the question is, what do we do about it, right? What do we do about it? And I think that their purpose, their motivation, but also the analysis they're laying out here is that the proletariat and the peasants are unrestful. Like they're, they're, they're restless. They're, become, they're beginning to be unruly. Um, and because of that, the, the wealthy bourgeois class is having to crack down even more um, you know, this links back as well, like the way that we describe the Amazon warehouses. I think there's a lot of connections going on here. Chuang, as, as not only this communist collective, but also um, as a publisher of a, of a journal, which has had two issues so far. Um, and they've got a, a, a number of, of blogs and articles on their website um, as well is really you know, they say that the purpose, the goal here is to analyze the ongoing development of capitalism in China um, and its historical roots and the revolts of those crushed beneath it, as they put it. W with the purpose here, the motivation here of providing 
you know, publishing translations, publishing original reports and comments on Chinese news um, for those, as they put it, quote, who want to break beyond the bounds of the slaughterhouse called capitalism. And I think that is a really important thing to keep in mind here is Chuang, um, as I think we all should and must, understand China as a capitalist state, as a form of capitalism, as you put it, Ed, the linchpin of global capitalism. Right. I think there's another section near the end of the editorial introduction I really like, kind of summarizes um, like the aim, at least with that, the aim that they have, at least with that issue, where they write, um, you know, throughout the historical portions of this journal, We aim to understand how a communist project seeking to destroy the old world, prevent the advent of capitalism, and build a new alternative future was itself transformed into a mere developmental regime. This experiment emerged and evolved under a particular political horizon inherited from both the European workers' movement and the region's own history as a millennial peasant revolt. When this uh, horizon ultimately closed, it did so not due to a loss of faith, a factional shift or some sort of moral betrayal, but because its conditions had changed. The closure of this horizon also ensured that most of the communists navigating by it soon found themselves unmoored, trapped within a developmental project that deepened upon the suppression of remaining emancipatory potentials of its own, for its own survival. Others were rendered into obsolete sects, obsessed with the worship of long-lost revolutions. Today, being communist means accepting the reality of these failures, but also recognizing that this old horizon has disappeared in its entirety, while a new one has yet and may never appear. This means that our communism differs in fundamental ways from that of the last century. Nonetheless, like them, we are attempting to navigate out from under a series of crushing contingencies. Uh, weighed down with the dead, this is the beginning of our thousand league. And I think this is also an important point in that, you know, something you'll see, I think we also see in debates is the questioning of whether uh, Chinese communists are actually communists, right? And I think that that is not really, um, you know, productive uh, debate, you know, because at the end of the day, right, it does it doesn't really matter if Chinese Communist Party or communist, but I think that, as Chuang would say, they probably are, or, or that they certainly, as the the political horizons closed, it didn't matter whether or not they were or not. They found themselves trapped inside of a developmental project, right? They found themselves trapped inside of a series of scenarios which forced them to try and fall back to developing China, so that someday in the future it might be able to achieve socialism or communism or upend a capitalist system, right? But that that's not what they want to do. And that it is that what they want to do is just a radically different project that still adheres to the ideals of socialism, of communism, right? But conflicts with and is not content with what it is right now under the Chinese Communist Party, which they would, you know, uh, label as a developmental project. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, I think that's exactly... Right. It has become subsumed into mode of global capitalist development. I mean, we could, you know, 
have long debates and discussions about the failures of, you know, of, of the Chinese uh, Communist Party, of the Soviet Union, right? The, the, the forms in which, you know, try, essentially trying to do capitalism, but better, right? Like, like a better form of capitalism and calling it communism or calling it Sovietism or whatever. I, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the, the kind of discussion that's productive to have right now. I think what's most interesting for us, um, especially coming from this Western point of view, but needing to understand what's happening in China and needing to understand what's happening in China from a radical left perspective. And that that is uh, where I find uh, a collective and a journal like Chuang so invaluable. I first came ac- across Chuang you know, we'll we'll get deeper into um, in our kind of a uh, exploration of of their analysis. Um, they published la- or they published last November a translation of a really long but amazing and detailed and just just grueling uh, report on the conditions of the gig economy and gig workers and platform labor in China. Um, but before we get into that. My, my first introduction to Chuang was this essay that they published in February of 2020, right? I think they've only been around since 2019, but they've already been making just waves with the, just like with the, the level of analysis, uh, that they've been publishing in their journal is just, just insane. It's so, it's so good. Um, but also it's so detailed and so, it's rigorous in a, in a way I've not seen really, um, be, you know, before, especially not in, in terms of like, you know, really understanding the political economy and the material and social conditions situated within China, um, you know, for West, you know, and, and it being accessible to a Western audience. Um, but, it, but they published this essay in February of 2020, right? Like right on the cusp of COVID becoming recognized as a global pandemic, right on the cusp of, uh, you know, in March, suddenly um, countries uh, and cities around the world being like, you know, shuttered into these lockdowns, into a kind of like a mass fear and paranoia of the virus. They published a, a really fucking long and historical and contemporary uh, essay called Social Contagion, Microbiological Class War in China. And I read that essay as I was like entering lockdown into Melbourne, right? As I was trying to come to under, like come, come to some kind of reckoning and understanding of what was happening, uh, this essay just provides an amazing... Uh, political economy, historical materialist analysis of pandemics um, and, and of the origins of pandemics at, and, the, and the consequences of the, these kind of viruses and what they call this microbiological class war as intimately linked to capitalism as something that cannot be disentangled from capitalist modes of production. I mean, that, that was my first introduction to Chuang and I was, I was sold on it. Uh, I was sold on this collective and this journal immediately. Yeah. You know, I've, I've only really read three things. I tried to map out 
a connection between capitalism and a connection between pandemics. There's Mike Davis's mm. book on uh, bird flu, which scared the ever living shit out of me. Um, there's um, an essay I think I read in the Guardian that talked about the the connection between capitalist food supply chains and uh, proliferation of pandemics over the past ten to fifteen years, and how it would it does not really matter what sort of public health controls we have in place as long as we make food the way that we do, we are going to be ready. We're going to have to deal with this over and over, and it will eventually create like a pandemic or a bug that would be resistant to most of the biotics, not all of them that we have. And then a uh, third one I think was in a Yasha Levine's newsletter. Um, arguing a similar thesis and then trying to take a more global view and looking at like a few particular sites of food production um, in connection and then also looking at the ones associated with COVID. You know, a lot of the time when we, you know, the most of the narratives that dominated it, I mean, I think still to this day, when we talk about the pandemic, there's almost no discussion about why pandemic happened and why they happen so often. I mean, the most systems analysis you see is that people just eat bats in China, right? That was like, that was a serious narrative for yeah. um, months that that was, the problem was they just had this, these wet marts. If they didn't have these wet markets, then we wouldn't have COVID. We wouldn't be in lockdown as if like we haven't had multiple pandemics across the world in places that did not have wet marts, right? There's been nothing examining except individuals who are like you know vegans or vegetarians who are who know about how brutal food production is and are saying like there's a connection here but it hasn't been like a real reckoning with it right and instead it's been more kind of seized upon as like china didn't do it right or like we we just you know happened into it and we tried to do the best that we did we could do as is usually the case when like the solution requires that you need to take a close look and examine what's wrong with capitalism you don't do it when we have to ask why is it that um, you know, like uh, one example is with India. Now we're sending them vaccine materials, right? Or we're sending them materials to make um, diagnostics and testing uh, diagnostic uh, kits and testing materials and uh, some of the vaccine materials, right? Instead of just breaking the fucking patent on all that shit so they could also do it locally, right? So we still have to be in control of it instead of actually just undermining the system in of itself for this crisis, yeah, I mean, I mean, to that point, and right, like, I mean, we we've we've already gone deep into this on our farmer profiteers and and uh, vaccine apartheid episode, but yeah, as Jeremy was just pointing out in the chat as well, right? Like, I think just today, uh, Salon had a headline that says Bill Gates says no to sharing vaccine formulas with global poor to end pandemic. Yeah, I'm I'm just not sure that there's there's a reason to get rid of the patents. You know? <laughs> they were the reason that they are so successful. <laughs> yeah. And I mean it's like so many people are pointing out, right? It's like, who fucking put you in charge, buddy? Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't remember asking you. How does your future is my design? I'm a god on Xbox. Now there's no one to stop me, the world is mine. You know, linking that up with uh, Chuang's essay on social contagion, right? Like we have to understand not only the origins of these pandemics, but the non-solutions, right, to these pandemics as a story of capitalism. And I, I mean, I think before we get even deeper into the fucking like vaccine and IP and pandemic shit again, right? We've already, we've, we've already, <laughs> we've covered that. We've covered that. Um, the, the whole point here 
I think the kind of analysis and the range of topics that Chuang is covering um, and, and the, the way that they're going about it is not only really impressive, but really important. And I, I think that, um, you know, the, I, I think this will be, we're kind of laying a foundation here right now of, I, I think Chuang will be a source that we go back to again and again and something that we, I think, need to take it upon ourselves and and are taking it upon ourselves here at TMK and I hope others do as well of of being like this is something that we as leftists need to pay attention to. I'm thinking of Chuang as well in in this like lineage of these uh you know kind of like communist radical leftist collectives like you know, in notes, right? We've talked about in notes, mm-hmm. um, like the Invisible Committee, right? Like Salvage, right? Which is another magazine um, that's uh, was founded by like China Miaville, um and a bunch of other really great UK-based, uh, you know, communist, you know, writers and thinkers and intellectuals and so on. You know, I'm thinking about Chuang needs to be in that lineage and in, in terms of like the level of attention and seriousness that is granted to the kind of theory uh, and, and analysis that they produce. Yeah. You know, I think, and I think the end notes comparison is a really good one, right? Because I mean, I do think like they are trying to work through what's left of communism in China. Also what like the outside world general audience member might think is communist or capitalist in China and also what they think individually as members of that collective or collectively as members of that collective think communism is and should be in China, right? In a way that I think Adnotes is trying to sort through or sift through communism, Marxism and the West, right? And what's left of it and what's not and what it was and what it wasn't. Absolutely. You know, for someone who isn't uh, very well versed on uh, the political system in China, uh, I've always thought as the CCP is kind of a combination Pizza Hut Taco Bell, a little of both. Not the entire Pizza Hut menu, not the tired Taco Bell menu, but a little bit of both. But it almost seems like a it's becoming more of a Taco Bell than a Pizza Hut, or you know, vice versa. I don't know which one. What do you think? Do you think Pizza Hut is the the Communist Party? And Taco Bell is the, uh, <laughs> I mean, they're they're both essentially owned by the same same corporation. They're, they're both young brands, which, which I think is the the story here, right? It's all the same corporation. <laughs> it's all the same corporation. I've never even thought of, I'm just an idiot. I've never even thought about that. I always just like assumed it was just, I never even, I, it never clicked in my head until just now that, yeah, no shit, idiot. Of course, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell are owned by the co- same company. What what company would let two different brands <laughs> sit in one room? <laughs> I don't remember, I don't remember when it was, but I'm, I want to say it was recently, like sometime in the past 10 years, but there was a big, uh, uh, kind of like a smear campaign online where people were saying that Taco Bell and Pizza Hut and Yum was uh, is a Chinese-owned company. Oh, my God. I think if, like, the guy who, whoever, like, if Taco Bell had, like, a guy in their logo or if Pizza Hut had a guy in their logo and, like, that dude, like, almost killed every capitalist, yeah, then the, this, that would be perfect example. Because it's, like, maybe, you know, like, if Colonel Sanders almost killed, like, every capitalist, but now he's just... A capitalist, you know, <laughs> then then that that might get into the territory where people can be like, nah, but look, like then they'll have the debate about whether or not 
it's still in that legacy or if it's still honoring him, if it's still living through his legacy or whether or not it's not. Because, <laughs> you know, because look, whatever we think of China today, you know, Mao, uh, like out of a lot of the revolutionary leaders was, you know, they, 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 they almost got there. You know, to, they almost got to the they almost got to the point of breaking free of capitalist society, uh, but today it's a combination piece of ho- piece of hot Taco Bell. Wait, we're at the Pizza Hut. What? We're at the Taco Bell. What? We're at the combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. We at the Pizza Hut. No. We at the Taco Bell. No. We at the combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. All of this has been a way of, of, of laying a foundation for more to come. I think for the, the rest of this episode, we're going we're gonna to dive into this really, really good report that Chuang translated, which I think is also something that is really important that they're doing, right? It's not only that they're publishing like original analysis, but they are translating, you know, really good stuff from... Chinese publications and translating it into English, which again, I think is, it's great because it's making that accessible to people like us, right? Who can't read uh, Mandarin, can't, you know, can't read Cantonese, right? Like are, you know, stuck in English and, but, but trying and needing to understand this, um, especially as China becomes, you know, well, it's not becomes, it, it has become, uh, you know, the rival global hegemon to the United States. Um, and it has its own spheres of influence. It's obvious we can't ignore it, but we also really have to be careful about, as Ed was laying out earlier, how we analyze it and what what line we're taking, what lies we're taking um, in that analysis. And who, who do we trust? Chuang translated this really long uh, report into the food delivery system, Um, you know, the delivery workers working on these like food delivery and courier platforms in China uh, and the, the, the awful, horrible labor conditions thereof. And they, they translated this long report from a Chinese magazine called Rin Wu. And the, uh, the title of this report that, that they've published it under is Delivery Workers Trapped in the System. And reading through this report, it was just like, I mean, it was heart-wrenching in so many ways that reading about the labor conditions in general are, is heart-wrenching, um, but also in so many ways deeply familiar if, if you are at all uh, aware of or you know familiar with the labor conditions of platform workers and gig economy workers and the U.S. and Europe and South America, right? There are so many similarities here, which shows a kind of uh, a red thread linking together these different modes of managing um, and, and exploiting and dominating and oppressing workers on these platforms using many of the same kind of uh, techniques and technologies and organizational methods. But also what was so interesting and so important was that there is a, a, uh, a very deep contextual aspect to it as well in terms of like who these laborers are and what their lived experiences and social relations or lack thereof are within these major Chinese cities 
um, that where most of this kind of platform work happens, but who's actually doing that? And uh, I mean, we'll, we'll get into it more, right? But just to, you know, not to bury the lead, but right, it, it is this migrant labor coming in from the countryside, from the rural towns that are coming into the cities to work on these platforms and, and therefore have very little rights granted to them um, and very little to no protections granted to them. Uh, again, this this report is just like massively long. It is so long. So we're, there's no way we're going to get through all of it. But I think what we're going to do is we'll get through a big chunk of it, just discussing our way through it, um, explaining it some, but also riffing on it, giving our own analysis as we, as we often do. We'll get through some of it, but really this is like laying the foundation for more episodes to follow as we look at China through the lens of Chuang. You know, little background on this report, right? So this report comes, you know, in 2020, right? Now the gig economy in China has been growing at a pretty rapid pace over the past few years for reasons that are, you know, largely similar to why it's been growing in ours. Part of it is, you know, capital flows and labor flows from the manufacturing to service sectors. And then also a growing segment of both being drawn to relatively unregulated world of digital platforms. And, you know, across that entire time, we've also been seeing in China increased labor activity uh, as strikes and shutdowns are growing increasingly common because of how bad labor conditions are within the gig economy. But in China, there's also been an additional accelerant in that there's been a, ve- a pretty vicious price war going on between courier companies since 2019. And this has sparked a race to the bottom in terms of lowering wages, right? Uh, increasing volume, um, pressuring uh workers to adopt increasingly unsafe practices, um, resulting in massive unpaid wages and back pay that is never, ever realistically going to be given to these workers. And again, as I said, resulting in a wave of shutdowns, disruptions of service over those uh, past few years, right? So all of this culminates in a report uh, in Renwu, which is a you know widely read Chinese magazine that published this long form report into food delivery. Before you go on to that, we should say that when this report was published in Renwu, it went like super fucking mega viral on Chinese social media. In a way, from what I've heard from people, you know this 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 report was like shared and read like millions of times. Um, which is just wild, right? Like in a way that like, I think a similar report on the working conditions in the political economy of platforms in like the US, for example, like would not. And this report is not short. It's like fucking like 20 to 25,000 words. It's fucking long. And for it to go mega viral like that, like that, I mean, I think that really speaks to not only how good the report is, but also just how much people relate to this and they know this is happening yeah you know it was it was viewed like 3.16 million times on the original link on weibo alone right that is uh insane that is a ridiculous uh coverage uh for for a long a long form article all right long form article i mean one thing i always think that blows my mind is how you know the new york times bestseller list considers something a bestseller if it's 
10,000 copies or more. (laughs) 10,000. 10,000, right? I know that doesn't easily translate over to these reports, but I mean, some of these fucking reports are as long as books, man. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) you know, and uh, 3 million views. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to overstate also like how much of an awareness is of is there is of this issue and how much of a conversation this article itself sparked spawning a wave of coverage that came after it following it trying to follow up with it and develop the points that it made right you know this report goes into a into a wide range of things in a way that i think also other reports here don't have the sort of space to go into, right? There are sections that deal with why couriers are given more demanding work and the consequences of that. You'll see, you know, the return of our favorite um, agent inside of the gig economy, the algorithmic overseers, that for some reason, we're not entirely sure of, for some reason, they seem to be in every single platform and part of every single platform work operation that you see. You know, Can't you figure also, it out. Can't figure <laughs> out like why these algorithmic oversteers are just, just fucking global. Why are they everywhere? <laughs> Probably a coincidence, right? Yeah, just coincidence. Uh, it's deterministic. It's because they're the best possible technology. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You'll also be you also see in this, you know, this report as we go over in this and other episodes, um, you'll you'll be familiar with the way that risk, namely safety, are externalized or obscured, right? And the way in which couriers are made invisible and turned into delivery infrastructure, not delivery people, right? Mm. They are thought of as just inanimate, intangible, taken for granted, and the human cost is not really taken into account. You know, right, because, really, because they are dehumanized. And so whatever right. costs they bear are by definition not human cost. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, uh, a lot of people are trained to uh, not think of delivery people as people, right? Um, or to, they think of them as workers, but not quite workers deserving human status. Um, and, you know, this is kind of built up in another section they have called Heavy Rain, which we'll be able to get to. Um, and that talks about, you know, how shitty these algorithmic systems are. You know, they are hailed as like pinnacles of development of technological prowess. But all it takes is a heavy rainstorm to fuck all of that up and to require human intervention and like really strict human intervention that is callous to the actual individual cost and burdens being placed on these uh, couriers, right? And then there are other sections. There's navigation as one section, a pretty big section that talks about how these algorithmic systems uh, push people to you know, extraordinary productive heights, but again, at immense cost that is externalized and kept out of sight by invisibilizing the workers, right? You you can do over two years, workers can go from doing three kilometers in an hour or two kilometers in an hour to two kilometers in 30 minutes um, because the navigation system encourages you to drive or ride against traffic, you know, and that's just how it is. Uh, games dives into the gamification of the wages, how independence and flexibility emerge, as they do here, as justifications for exploiting the workers or for con- convincing them to play into these games uh, where they compete against each other themselves. Going on that as well, just like, again, the emergence and consistency of these same like key concepts of independence or entrepreneurialism and flexibility, there is a way in which, you know, the knowledge transfer and the ideological transfer and the technology transfer of 
these capitalist innovations and modes of, of production uh, is global, right? Like they learn from each other, right? Like companies like Uber and Lyft and Deliveroo learn from and work with these Chinese companies, right? Um, like Aleme or Maiton, right? Like there's connection, there's coordination here. <laughs> you know, we joked earlier, oh, it's just coincidence. It's not a coincidence, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely not a coincidence. <laughs> we, lied. <laughs> we lied, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but it's absolutely not a coincidence at all. What it is, is a, a mass coordination and knowledge sharing amongst different capitalists. We, we, we are constantly told that capitalism is a story of competition, but as we've talked about in earlier episodes and other episodes, right, competition is increasingly something that workers have, right? Workers compete with other workers. Capitalists collude and coordinate with each other increasingly, right? And I, I think we can see that in just the way in which the same exact, not only the same exact technologies of, you know, these algorithmic overseers uh, and, and the, the ways the platforms work and so on is similar, but also the same kind of ideology that is used to justify, maintain and perpetuate these systems is also the same. It, what is it in China? There's like a duopoly with the with the app services. Um I know in the United States, there's what, something like eight or nine various ones kind of like, but they're all led by what, like Uber, DoorDash. I know there's some local ones scattered around all over like smaller areas, but it seems like they all are taking like pointers from what's going on in China, like lowering the amount of money that drivers earn per delivery, uh, penalizing drivers if say you go to pick up food from a place and the food isn't ready. So the drivers get penalized. So there's more of an emphasis for them to like hurry up and get these orders done. Deliveroo and Uber and stuff like that to take pointers for what's going on in China is going to set a dangerous precedent in the United States as well. I will say as well that while, you know, there are so many similarities as we've been pointing out, there are also really important differences, which I think the, the, the Chuang uh, or the Rinru report that Chuang translated really spends a lot of time talking about. And a lot of that boils down to uh, you know, the geography, of course, right? The the geography of China and the class composition that's tied to that geography, right? The class composition of the cities versus the countryside of not only, you know, the professional urban class in China um, and, and the like, you know, the proletariat workers, but also the, 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 the peasants, right? The, the kind of rural peasant class that still exists in China as well and is subsumed into this platform political economy, this platform capitalism in really important ways. Right. As they are able to flesh out their art, yeah, and, you know, these differences are key. They end up being really important in, for example, uh, helping create this disappearing time, right? Where delivery times get smaller and smaller and smaller and workers just figure out ways to adapt to it. It's hard to imagine the sort of, for example, wanton disregard for traffic laws that go on there happening here, not because it's like we would never. I mean, everyone, no, we all <laughs> you know, break break traffic laws all the time, right? 
Right. And, and the, and, and delivery drivers have always been pressured to speed and drive recklessly and so on. But it is hard to imagine that the pressures that exist because of how in some areas the digital platforms are less regulated than even here, or when they are less regulated, uh, there is support from the legal uh, framework or from the legal uh, from the regulatory regime that you don't see here, even though there is collaboration between the state and these companies in the United States, right? I think that there are you know a series of sections, you know, that with titles I think you know resonate, right? Scooters, smiling action, five star ratings, the final safety net. I mean, these all talk about the ways in which your safety comes secondary and where the companies are able to free themselves of liability. Encourage people to perform acts of emotional labor or do fake safety checks or safety actions that just penalize individual drivers who are unlucky enough to get caught doing what they need to do to make these five-star ratings and these uh, punishing delivery times. I mean, that these sections, I think, hammer home how uniquely horrible the situation is in China, but also how the core of it is the same here as it is in in other parts of Asia, as it is in Africa, as it is in Latin America, as it is in Europe, as it is in the Middle East, as it is in the United States, you know, North America. You know, there, as everywhere, the law ends up being used as a tool to ensure capital control, right, instead of capital controls. And it, it is used to ensure that the law and the regulations and the reality of of this market or of, you know, the way labor is being, you know, disciplined fits the didacts of capital are first and foremost, right? And I think all that closes out in the final section where they just talk about how, look, they even look at the people who code these systems and they see that these people are trapped and they're enmeshed in an even larger web, right? Because they don't have the capacity to critically engage with and disengage from these exploitative and immoral enterprises. So they keep coding them and codifying them and legitimizing them and building them up and making them impervious to intervention or sabotage or disruption. Meanwhile, they are producing all this data uh, and, and and disrupting the ability of the public to have discussions about owning it or of discussions about moving away from commodity categorization of data, right? Or of privacy or of regulation of both of those, right? Yeah, and I, I like this distinction of the law as a tool for uh, capital control instead of capital controls or uh, control by capital rather than control of capital and the the unevenness in which this is applied as well, right? Like, you know, we talked about in our, our, our antitrust episodes on China, you know, and there's a lot more reporting that's happened since then about these like new antitrust laws that are really targeting groups like, like you know, like Alibaba and people like Jack Ma, right? The Chinese state and the, you know, the central bank and all that is really targeting like these big fintechs um, with these like, you know, this this harsher antitrust regime. But I think that there's a story here about the unevenness of how the state targets and applies these kinds of and these kinds of uh, regulations to what sectors, what industries, right? 
I think that there, there's a there's a reason why uh, companies like Alibaba, why industries like the like fintech, why people like Jack Ma are being targeted by these uh, state regulations. Which you know, uh, yeah, we fucking need these state regulations. Yeah. <laughs> we should get taking, his ass. We should you fucking get his ass. We should be taking some inspiration from that. At the same time. Uh, the state is not doing that out of some like beneficence, right? The state is doing that because these industries and companies and people are threatening the power and the authority of the state. This is also like behind the kind of rollout uh, of things like centralized digital currency, right? Provides the state with more uh, authority and they rapidly clamp down on companies and industries and people that threaten that authority that fly in the face of it right someone like jack ma that stands up and gets a little bit too uh, uh you know beats his chest a little bit too hard gets a little bit too uppity and they put his ass down um right. but <laughs> i think that there's the the unevenness here as well is the way in which like you know as this report lays out as we'll get into in this episode, but also in future episodes, because we're already running up on like the hour mark here. <laughs> um, no, this is just set up. Yeah, no, this I is all set one. up. This is all set up. You guys are along for the ride. But there's an unevenness here in the ways in which the state is not doing any of that with these platforms, right? Is letting the platforms just flagrantly disregard the law while also putting all the the risk and the uh the the consequences of that flagrant disregard of the law and public safety and worker safety and so on onto the workers themselves, right? They are the ones that are punished, right? It's not the algorithms that demand uh, traffic violations that, you know, as Jeremy threw in the chat, right? It's not the, it's not these platforms and these apps that give their drivers walking directions in order to encourage the drivers to like ride their mopeds on the sidewalk and against the traffic, right? They're not the ones that have the law on them. They're not the ones that the cops are like busting down their door or giving them fines or whatever. It's the workers who get caught doing it who are punished, right? The problem here is you got caught, right? The problem is not the app that's telling you to do it. The problem is you got fucking caught and you have to deal with that. Um, and so I think that that is a really important point here is that there, there's an unevenness of how the law is applied in some circumstances to allow capital to have control and in other circumstances to put control on capital, and and that that's a, that unevenness is a major problem, and it raises questions of power and interest. Right? It's whose interests are really cared about here, whose power really has to be uh, maintained here. And uh, uh, you know, we see over and over and over again. It's it's not the working class. It's not the it's not the riders. It's not the drivers. It's not the proletariat or the peasants or whatever you want to say. Right? It, those are not the people. And I think that is something that, you know, Chuang points out really, really well in their kind of overarching mission as well. Uh, when, they, when they talk about how the wealthy are, you know, feasting lavishly um, and, and there, there is a partnership between the wealthy capital and the powerful state. Uh, and, and as long as that partnership is maintained and nobody gets a little bit ahead of the other, then they they can they can join hands together in their mutual exploitation and oppression of everybody else. Right. And they will. And they will, as they point out, you know. 
Strong, in its separate commentary on this, points out that you know labor in the gig economy, you know, a little bit more concretely, strikes by the food delivery riders, and they're called riders here. I should clarify, couriers are called riders. But a good mental note to have listening to this is when you're delivering packages. There's no rider other than the courier. So rider, courier, same thing, right? So strikes by food delivery riders, right? Between 2017 and 2019, they went from 10 in 2017 to at least 45 in 2019 in China alone, right? And this is the story, as you, you know, listening to TMK know, this is the story globally, right? Couriers, gig workers, uh, they've been engaged in protests and strikes and shutdowns and work stoppages and all sorts of labor actions for years calling for better working conditions, right? I think that uh, there's been a lot of really great reporting on this, you know, specifically Rest of the World is a publication I think that's been really good with showing how tech is being resisted, or circumvented in uh, in the rest of the world. <laughs> I mean, as as the name suggests, um, and one series of you know, essays that have been really illuminating for me that I highly recommend are on Grab, which is like a pretty big um, you know startup uh, in Southeast Asia that has you know dominated the markets there and was about to merge with another massive company. Uh, you know, Rita Card. Uh, uh, Godry is a really great researcher who's uh, been writing about this extensively and researching it. But, you know, in the global south, these sort of protests have been ongoing constantly, right? And these sort of actions have been ongoing constantly. In China especially, right, because of the conditions we've already outlined here, because of the price war that we also prefaced with before, things have gotten even worse where, like, just as a measure of how often people are talking about it, online activity uh, by striking workers is proliferated, right? With the Baidu search volume for related keywords going up 2,235% year on year from October 2020, October 2019, right? Now, some companies have listened, you know, and after this report, uh, some companies introduced features where a customer could say, I would like five to 10 more minutes for my delivery person to get here, or they would themselves add more flexible time, or they would stop orders during inclement weather. But none of this really gets to the heart of the issue. None of this gets to the heart of issue of algorithmic incentives or incentives that are introduced into platform work when algorithms are managing how uh, orders are being distributed, um, trying to reduce delivery times to increase the volume, to increase productivity, to increase the money that is being generated, right? All of this doesn't address how algorithmic governance ends up disregarding public safety, uh, disregarding uh, the, the humanity of the workers, right? And gamifying everyone and everything it touches. And it also doesn't address the price war that is also suppressing courier wages, not paying workers, right? Takeaway from all this ends up being that, you know, while the report doesn't really offer a way forward, it will give us a good way to understand algorithmic governance of labor, the economic conditions of the gig workers, and the similarities of the platforms in the United States and in China, right? Absolutely. I I mean, again, I want to underscore, I think that's a really important point. And, you know, it goes to uh, what we talked about at the beginning when we were talking about the the kind of, you know, what Chuang means and and their their mission and the origins of their name, right, is that there are strikes, right? There, There is labor action happening here. 
Um, and how could there not be, right? How could there right. not be? People can only take so much as, as we talked about with Alex Press, right? People can only take so much. Let's dive a little bit into the beginning of this report <laughs> with the promise yeah. that um, obviously uh, sometime in the, in the very near future, we will, we, we will look at the rest of the report. We will dive much deeper into it. But, you know, again, like, like we said, like the, the, we're really kind of setting up, we're setting the stage here for the performance. Um, and, and so first section of the report really opens up on the story of an LME writer, right? And LME is one of the major online food delivery platforms uh, in China, as well as um, the uh, another big one, Maiton. But it opens up on this report of an LME writer who in 2019 was told that they'd need to travel two kilometers within 30 minutes, uh, a distance which, you know, as Ed pointed out earlier, for the past two years, the shortest delivery time was 32 minutes. Right. So riders for, for my ton, like I said, another, another one of these platforms also noticed a very similar change where orders, you know, two kilometers away were shortened from 50 minutes to 35 minutes, then eventually becoming 30 minute maximums for anything, anything within three kilometers. This is a, 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 not possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not possible. Right. But, but this kind of work speed up we have to take really seriously, right? Like, like, the, like this is, you know, them throwing into overdrive the, the gears of production here, right? Saying that the, you know, this thing that used to take you 50 minutes to do, you now have a maximum of 30 minutes to do it. I mean, this industry wide, you know, users um, of yeah, and riders on the app begin to experience what, the report calls disappeared time where delivery orders were expected in shorter and shorter increments. As the report says, quote, the system that governs delivery services has the power to continuously consume delivery time for the system's creators. This is a praiseworthy advancement, a real world embodiment of the deep learning capacity of artificial intelligence. At MyTon, the real time smart delivery management system is called Superbrain, while at Elemi, uh, they call their system the Arc. <laughs> Nightmare shit. <laughs> Nightmare shit. Um, in, in a November 2016 interview, Maiton founder Wang Zheng stated, quote, our slogan is Maiton, send everything faster, or rather send anything faster. You know, usually our deliveries will arrive within 28 minutes, as the founder of Maiton said. You know, he, he went in, he went on to state that this represents a uh, good application of technology. Yeah, good tech is when you, when you get shit faster, right? <laughs> yeah. Next day shipping... Okay, same day shipping, great. That's the best tech that anybody's ever made, right? <laughs> and if you think about it, fire, that's what uh, the reason why fire is the best is one of the best technologies is it cooks the food faster, right? So it sends good food to you faster. I mean, everything is just about sending it to a destination faster, your stomach, you know, <laughs> some customer's house. It's every everything. That's what technology is. Langdon Winter, he didn't get that, you know. <laughs> one day he'll, you know. I think it was the first Ninja Turtles movie. Or like they're sitting in the sewer waiting for their pizza and you know Dante is like a pizza dude's got 30 seconds mm-hmm. hmm. 
Time's up. Three bucks off. I can imagine this is just, you know, what's happening with a lot of these apps. But the problem is, is like the Domino's drivers back then weren't getting penalized. They weren't getting money taken off of their delivery for not making delivery times. And that's what hap happens with a lot of those Chinese delivery apps. See how capitalism progresses? It made the mistake back then of not punishing them. And now that <laughs> punishes them, now, now they can do it. Now they have the chops to do it, you know? That's right. And and instead it was, you know, uh, a manager sitting there being like, hey, man, you got to go faster. I'm, get, I'm getting angry calls. But now because of technology, you got an algorithm. It's just automatically set in the pace, right? Good thing it's not Nostra Costa or was it Nostra Costa Pizza from uh, Snow Crash where, you know, if you don't make the delivery in time, they, uh, they send Uncle Enzo to come slice you with a razor. <laughs> That's just around the corner, dude. That's just around the corner. <laughs> we're fucking, uh, we're careening off the road right into Snow Crash is what, that's what's <laughs> happening here. <laughs> it's just like the Friedman um, children wanted, you know, David Friedman, you oh, know, yeah. in his little sea setting city. <laughs> that's exactly what he wanted. So the report goes on, you know, what, what is this, what does this kind of speed up, um, actually mean for workers, right? So, uh, as the report says, right, exceeding the delivery time, uh, limit results in bad reviews, pay cuts, even dismissal from the job, right? All the things that we're familiar with, um, you know, in the, in the, in the Western context with platforms like Uber, right? Like you, your rating drops below 4.8 or whatever, and you get deactivated, right? You become indebted to the platform itself because, uh, you know, you owe for some missed deliveries or you owe for this or you owe for that. Uh, you know, your, your pay gets cut. You don't get the jobs uh, shuttled over to you anymore. You know, in a message board for delivery riders, uh, one wrote that the del delivery is, quote, a race with death, a competition with traffic cops and a friendship with red lights. I mean, it, it becomes up to the workers and, and, a, and a whole lot of luck, right? Just 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 hoping and praying um, that the red lights are in your favor, that nobody's going to blow through that intersection and just fucking plow into you, that the traffic cops are looking the other way, right? Becomes up to the workers to figure out how to meet these increasingly unrealistic demands, right? Th this is, um, you know, th this is the kind of like ingenuity that capitalism says, you know, it provides to people, right? It provides the right incentives for creativity and ingenuity for innovation. This is what capital means here, right? The uh, It's up to, to workers to find ingenious, innovative ways to meet uh, unrealistic demands and paces for, for work. You know, like so, some of the uh, the drivers, right, talk about how, uh, you know, quote, if he followed all the traffic laws, the number of orders he could deliver in a day would be cut in half. While another driver um, told the authors of the report 
that workers, quote, can never rely on their individual power to fight back against the times assigned by the system. All we can do is exceed the speed limit in order to make up for lost time. What it does, you know, all of this, the violation of the traffic laws to meet the demands of uh, of an algorithm, right? It creates a type of um, what the researchers for the report call uh, inverse algorithm, which, you know, they describe as writers who have long been under the control and management of the algorithm have no choice but to use this labor practice. The direct result of this inverse algorithm is a sharp rise in the number of traffic accidents involving delivery drivers. And, 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 and that goes without question, right? The statistics bear it out that these, you know, these, the, this algorithmic management and these, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the pacing, uh, you know, the quickening pace of work, the recklessness uh, that's demanded, it's contributed greatly to the rise of traffic accidents. In 2017, 12 delivery riders were killed in traffic accidents every quarter in Shenzhen alone, right? In the first half of 2017, one delivery rider died every two days in a traffic accident. Jump over to just 2018, right? And, and there was a re- reports that just under 10,000 traffic violations by delivery workers, 196 accidents, and 155 deaths. You know, every single day, there's a courier that violates a traffic law or was involved in an accident. And that, that, that's not unintended or unpredicted or unforeseen consequence here. This is purposeful. This is predictable right? We know that this is what's going to happen when this is the pace of work that's demanded. One particularly harrowing story, right, to close out this section, you know, following one specific writer, right, that the interviewers were able to talk to. So the report, you know, reads, a scooter wrecks happen far too often, but the main question is whether or not the food spills and not the injuries to the riders. Zhu Dei, told us that when he was delivering orders, he saw countless roadway accidents. Usually, though, he would not stop because his own deliveries could not wait. Meituan writer Wei Lai experienced uh, something similar to that of Zhu Dei. One afternoon, this spring, Wei Lei and another writer wearing the same color clothing as him were stopped at an intersection waiting for the light to change. There were only a few seconds before that light turned green, but the other rider darted into the intersection. At the same time, a fast-moving bus sped through and the rider and his scooter went flying. He died on the spot. Wei Lai said that he saw the body, badly mangled body in the middle of the road, but he did not stop at all. His own order was late. At that time, another order came in and the familiar female voice of the app's delivery assistant chimed in. Order from point A to point B. Please respond after the beep to accept. I mean, that harrowing like barely approaches the right emotion for that, right? We love capitalism or do we love it? Do <laughs> it demands death, right? Demands sacrifice. sacrifice. Blood for the blood god and skulls for the skull throne. That's right. I think that's the question we have to ask here, right? Like none of this is worth any, you know, none of this is ever worth the cost. But in this particular system, for these particular purposes, what was the reason? So you get food five minutes faster 
than you would have yeah. otherwise? Yeah. And the answer is yes. That is the <laughs> reason here, right? It, the, the, the metric here is the life of the rider is worthless. The food, the delivery, the time, the pace, that's, that's what programmed as given more weight in these, you know, in these algorithmic programs of weighting different metrics and variables, right? It does not have space because it's not programmed to, to consider all of these other factors, the deaths of the riders, the dehumanization that that then causes, right? The fact that you can watch one of your fellow workers for these platforms get crushed, careening by a bus, right? Just badly mangled body, as Waylay said, right? But you have to keep going. You have to keep moving because your livelihood depends on that hot food getting delivered on time, every time. And it's horrible, right? I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's atrocious. But in a broader point as well, what it does is it, it demands that not only the, is, is the company and the algorithm and the whatever dehumanizing the workers, but demands that other workers dehumanize other workers. It breaks any kind of bond of solidarity, any kind of bond of sympathy, of caring. It, it, it's a system that's designed to destroy any of that for the sake of capital. It's really depressing. <laughs> you know, <it's laughs> extremely, really yeah, extremely. There's a video that I saw recently that was put out by Munchies. It was a couple of months ago. Uh, it was basically covering like the ghost kitchens and the delivery app drivers in China. And it ended that video with uh, interviewing a, a mother and daughter who twice a week have their mother-daughter time and they order food. And they're talking about how wonderful it is and how much time they get to spend with each other. And then they cut to the guy who delivered their food to them. And he's just basically like sitting there eating by himself and looking, scrolling through his phone and looking at, you know, what he's made. And there's no care given for how you're getting the food as long as it gets there. I don't know if the apps in China did the same thing, but with Uber, especially during the pandemic, they want you to bring stuff to people's homes, put it on the doorstep. Uh, or if you're delivering to an apartment building, you have to go into the apartment building and deliver it. And they started doing that with the Chinese drivers, but still having the same time expectations. So instead of having these little outdoor areas where people come and meet them and get their food, there's some where they make them go into the apartment building. And the only what the only consolation they're given for that delivery is like what maybe an extra five minutes to make sure that, that delivery is done in time, or they get like a they get fined, or they get money taken off of their earnings. Fucking burn it all down. Just fucking burn it all down, man. Yeah, and the report goes into that as well, that it causes, um, you know, it causes these interactions between drivers and like, uh, you know, security guards in these apartment buildings, right? Where the driver is like, I need to get up to this office or I need to get up to this apartment because I have food. It's already late. I have to get, I have to make my delivery. And the security guard has their own job, right? They're saying, no, you can't pass. I, I, I can't let you pass, right? And, and so it causes these direct conflicts and, uh, between, you know, uh, different sectors of capital, right? Um, of, of the delivery drivers being like, I have to, I have to do this. The, the, the app is demanding that I do this. The security guard saying, no, my, my job is to keep people like you out. And so you've got these direct conflicts here, these contradictions in these systems 
that yeah, I mean systems of control. You know, we got to lose a society of control on the one hand, and if we have whoever fucking theorized this magical algorithmic control system that is dominating the lives of workers on the other, they have to conflict. That's right. That's right. It, it's it's contradictions every you know all the way down, and we're we're just we're just caught in the middle. We'll wrap up the episode soon, but I do want to get to this next section of the report. Oh, you know, only to say that there's a lot more for us to get into in a in a future episode. But you know, the 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 next section. Yeah, you know, I think this section it opens up pretty much trying to talk about how the algorithm is supposed to work, right? You know, the PR speak that we're all familiar with. You know, um, it reads the according to the algorithm's parameters. After a writer has accepted an order, the system will begin looking for an order for the writer to complete. In 2019, at the Global Arts Summit, Wen Shengyo, the senior algorithm expert on the team uh, that developed Meitan's delivery management algorithm, introduced the AI's basic operations. The moment a customer places an order, the system immediately begins looking for its closest rider with the most direct route. After determining which rider to assign the individual order, the system will usually assign a rider batch of three to five orders. Each order involves two tasks, picking up the food and delivering the food. If a rider is responsible for five orders, that entails 10 tasks, and the system will consider 11,000 possible routes. It is possible for the system to simultaneously assign 10,000 orders to 10,000 people in one second. With each rider receiving the optimum route for delivery. As we all know, however, the reality is far from that, right? The investigation found that all you needed was heavy rain to shut this shit down. You know, problem because bad weather is precisely when more orders are made. And in one horrible retelling, there was a worker who remembers how a particularly rainy night saw each rider at a station with over 10 orders at a time struggling to attach orders to their scooters. Uh, Genzi remembers that he had to carefully rest his feet on the edges of the scooter's footboard, balancing a stack of food orders where he would normally rest his feet. As he ran orders from one place to the next, he would constantly look down at the boxes stacked between his legs to make sure they had not spilled. The roads were so slippery that he slid many times, but each time he would immediately get up and continue on his delivery. He worked without stopping until two in the morning, and only then could he finish all of his deliveries. A few days later, he received his pay for the month. Shockingly, his pay was lower than usual. There was a simple explanation. On the stormy day, many of his orders were delivered late, causing his pay to be docked. Gang Z was not the only one to have his wages cut. His station supervisor was also penalized. And the station supervisor is an interesting role that does not exist in the Western context, but is a very interesting dynamic that I think unfurls even more of how these algorithmic systems work, as, or is more revealing than you would otherwise see in the West, right? Now, delivery stations, I think the best way to think of them are nodes in this entire network where the couriers depart from. They're also assigned 
you know, orders at these delivery stations, right? And the delivery supervisors, their role is mainly to oversee each delivery to make sure that it's actually going as proceeded and at times to intervene. And the intervention is the, is the part that we'll talk about in a bit. So one delivery supervisor that they profiled described his role as basically eating data, right? Because of how heavy on numbers it was. You know, for a station, uh, he said, the most important numbers include the orders accepted, the rate of late orders, the rate of bad reviews, and the rate of complaints. Of these, the rate of late orders is the most important because many complaints and bad reviews stem from delayed deliveries. Now, if late orders hit a certain threshold, you start to see that a station's ratings will drop, their cut of delivery fees will drop, and that amounts to a pay cut for the supervisor, for the quality control workers, and other internal management personnel. And at the end of each year, delivery stations are assessed by the delivery companies and are at risk of elimination if the numbers are unsatisfactory to the company, right? So late deliveries don't only affect wages, but the whether or not the, the whole entire station exists. And this has a negative consequence for the mental health of the workers, right? Because as they tell the reporters, it can make a writer feel like a team's weak link, mm-hmm. right? Because they're jeopardizing their own job and that of everyone else around them for no fault of their own. It's because of how the system was established to quantify these these metrics and prioritize them, right? So it reads, you know, when a rider lets everyone down by running behind, the station supervisor talks to him first. After the station supervisor is finished, the neighborhood supervisor will come looking for him. And after the neighborhood supervisor has finished speaking with him, the district supervisor will get involved. Supervisors at all levels will get in touch with the problem rider. In the end, nobody will like him anymore. So on individual writers, this can mean that fucking up for no reason, again, other, of your own, other than being dropped inside of an inhumane, unrealistic, demanding system, translate into a lot of self-loathing. There was one writer, there was a particularly poignant example, someone who was excited to get the job, who came from the countryside, was a peasant beforehand, right? He'd come to the countryside, migrated to the city because they were excited to get this job and, you know, to at least get some of the money working for it. And they would ask themselves. Isn't it true that every delivery rider can make more than 10,000 won a month? Isn't anyone able to be a delivery rider? Why couldn't he do it well? He said it seemed like he wasn't delivery material. That's pretty much a dead ringer for what you hear from ride-hailing food delivery riders or workers in every part of the world, right? They blame themselves Mm -hmm. or they're told to blame themselves for not hitting the goal because the goal is a realistic one. Why else? Why would the company set a goal that's unrealistic, right? This is a this is a number that is realistic and it's objective. It's it's arrived at because of the algorithm, uh, you know, science. Well, that's not exactly true. It's a number that's arrived at because uh, these are the demands of the company as it's you know pursuing perpetual growth, right? And so, no matter how much of an expert you become, uh, bad weather is always going to crush your ability to deliver on time. It's going to dock your pay. It's going to hurt your station's ratings. It's going to unleash a torrent of self-loathing. It's going to potentially jeopardize your livelihood if you don't have much in the bank account, right? Or worse, because, you know, as one rider, as happened to one rider in Shanghai during a typhoon that hit in 2019, uh, you could get accidentally electrocuted when the power lines get cut and then they come down into the water. But even then, even when someone dies, uh, you know, in that moment, the station supervisor forbade everyone from taking time off and sent everyone a message saying anyone who doesn't show up for work will receive a double penalty for absenteeism. Why? Because the station eats data to preserve itself. It must in the face of higher demand 
which is during bad weather, satisfy the demand. And it's an inflexible rule. The only exceptions are birth, you know, of a child, death of a family member, illness of yourself, or your own death, right? Those are the only excuses. So you can't ask for leave on bad weather days. And if you leave, you'll get a fine. And it's it all builds up it's you know in such of a ridiculous way because the inclement weather is also precisely when you're the you're the most likely to have the system fall apart not only because of how bad delivery times are but because the algorithm simply can't keep up and it, and the supervisor has to step in right so a company like Mayton it may dictate the maximum number of orders and say look you can't do more than twelve orders you know as one example. But during heavy rain, you'll see the system start to collapse. Some riders will get no orders. Others will get 12 orders at that exact maximum, and others will get 12 orders or a lot of orders, but some and each one of them will be in the opposite direction, right? They'll be assigned at the same time, and you have to deliver them at the same time, but they're in opposite directions. Or others will get longer delivery times for closer orders or shorter delivery times for longer uh, distance orders. And so in these times, when the system falls apart, uh, the supervisor for the delivery station steps in and does manual scheduling. And that's when you start to get into even worse territory because the manual manual scheduling can be such that a supervisor will assign 26 orders per person. They're doing this because they're thinking to themselves, a station can have a max of 30 riders. So, you know, in three orders, it can handle, you know, if, if everyone is assigned three or if everyone is assigned 30, then eventually we can get to a point where we can handle a thousand orders, right? The intervention is done not for the sake of the workers, not so that they can deliver orders on time, not so that they can have orders that are not in opposite directions, but so that the station is preserved, right? And that is ostensibly given as a re- rash, uh, reason that's defending the workers saying, look, if the station didn't exist and you wouldn't have your job, right? But to do that, it pushes them to their absolute limits, right? 26, 30 plus orders. And and, and doing as uh, Genji did, right? Stacking orders in unsafe ways and prioritizing them even if you fall off your scooter. When all else fails, then the supervisor, right? The human overseer will try to fill in orders themselves. And if that fails, only then, only then do they ask Meitan to limit the orders, Fucking, I'm 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 like speechless over here because it's it, I mean it's just such a it's such a, a on one hand it's such a gr- you know, such a grueling labor system right a, a, a grueling system of work but on the other hand it's also one that is so fragile it's such an unresilient and fragile system ungiving um, in every possible way right ungiving to the workers. Um, but also ungiving to uh, external conditions that might affect, you know, like bad weather, bad heavy rain. It, it, it simply cannot, and I think this is something we see across um, so many of these kinds of uh, forms of algorithmic management, with this just being a, a, a really, really severe example of it. These systems are brittle. They're unable to... Uh, accept any kind of, of of changes or any kind of upheaval to the system as it's laid out, as it's programmed, as the parameters are set, right? And what that means is that it causes everybody to get to have to uh, organize themselves in such a way as to uh, keep the algorithm going, to keep to maintain it, to maintain the order flow, right? It, it's not the other way around where the technology or the organization changes according to the conditions or the ability 
um, or the number of workers, but rather everyone has to fit themselves to the dictates, the commands, the purposes of the algorithm. It, I mean, it, it's that what we talked about in, in our last Patreon episode where we were talking about you know labor processes of uh, of Amazon warehouses and and Alessandro Delfanti, you know, a paper that we we discussed, you know, had that term machinic enslavement, right? And, and that's what this is, right? It, it is a way of enslaving the workers to the machine. Um, and the 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 dictates and the purposes of the machine have to be maintained. That becomes that supersedes everything else, and it leads to exactly what you've just laid out here, Ed, and exactly what this report uh, you know lays out in in terrible detail. It leads to these kinds of systems that are heart wrenching and grueling and inhumane in every possible way. We always say it's bad, but it can get worse. And um, I mean, I think that we see that it is already worse, right? It, it, you, it just depends on who you're talking to, where you're looking, right? Um, it is already worse. We live in a miserable world, folks. We live in a miserable world. Um, all around this planet, billions of people in one way or another are being forced to live and die in unimaginably horrible, cruel conditions while people miles away from them live in historical abundance. This is how it is here and in every single corner of the world. And in some places, it's just even more vulgar and hard to avert your gaze from. Yeah. Uh, like in this instance. And looking at something like these platforms in the service sector, right? Because like, you know, sometimes the analysis or the critique or whatever is that like, you know, the, these people in these places, whether it's, you know, it's the the slave labor in the Congo mining the rare earth minerals, um, or it's the, the, the workers in the Foxconn factory, right? Putting together your, your Apple iPhone and your Apple products, right? Like this, you know, these people have to uh, endure this kind of exploita- exploitation and, uh, you know, slavery and all of that so that, so that others can have that historic abundance, right? That's fucking awful, right? It's fucking awful, but it does also allow um, so many people to uh, to ignore, right? In this kind of way, that the product becomes a fetish, and it, it, all of the labor and the inputs into it are alienated, are removed from it. Looking at something like the service sector, like the you know the the platform labor, and and these kinds of grueling conditions that we've just laid out, all in the service of what? Right. I think we have to keep asking ourselves that question on the service of what? So that some people get their food five minutes faster than uh, than they otherwise would. That's what it all boils down to. We can say the same thing in the US, right? And I, I fear, I fear so much that companies, you know, that that we heap so much criticism and hatred upon, like Uber, for example. And then, and, the, and now we just, you know, we hear the uh, the, the the working conditions and the experiences um, of similar kinds of companies in China and how much worse they are. I fear that companies like Uber are looking abroad, looking at China, just drooling, just hoping, praying, wishing they could do that same thing 
in the US, in Europe, right? In, in, in wealthier countries that supposedly have, you know, labor protections and, and compared to what we've just heard do have labor protections. But, but that comparison, uh, is a really fraught comparison, right? It's a comparison of, uh, of different degrees of dystopia. Putting people's lives in jeopardy for $20 worth of fucking food. It's not fucking worth it. It's not fucking worth it. And the problem is, is there's people that are going to rely on that here and people, it's going to happen here and it's going to happen if we don't stop it. No, I, th- I mean, I think that's exactly right. Right. The, the, the problem that people like Dara Khosrowshahi, uh, you know, Uber CEO or people like Palmer Lucky, right? Like the problem is, is that, uh, that's happening in China and it's not happening here. That's the problem, right? The problem is not the model itself. The problem is where it's happening. Um, and if it happened uh, here, it would, it would actually be good. Um, but because it's happening there, uh, it's, it's actually bad. Uh, but, but they don't have a problem with the model itself. And, and I, you know, I think as a way of just you know, bringing this episode to a close, you know, the, the, I, I think it is really important as well. To, the, the story to not take away from this is that, oh, well, we don't have it that bad. Yeah. Right. Which I think is the story that a lot of uh, business people and capitalists uh, and and the uh, the useful idiots and take away from this. Right. Is that like, what are you complaining about? Could be like that. It's not. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) As Jeremy said, yeah. (laughs) The conclusions we have to take from this. And that Chuang is taking, that we all have to take, is not that it could be worse. Count your blessings. Mm-hmm. The conclusion is it should be better. Yes. Hey, that's a good. I like that. Thank you. That's a nice way to end the episode for us. It it should be better. Don't demand lot. La- don't expect lies. Demand more. That's right. And with that, it should be better. I want to thank everybody for listening to TMK. As Jeremy said, this is this is a this is an OG long ass TMK hey. episode. <laughs> Back to the basics. Lord forgive me. Back to the old me. <laughs> Thanks for listening. There's so much more to dive into, and and we will in future episodes in this report and more that Chuang puts out um, as we try to understand the way that Chuang is the conditions of capital around the world, right? Through the lens of the labor processes and the working conditions and the political economic structures and technological systems and all that in those places. So you can find more from us every single week on patreon.com slash this machine kills. Uh, our Patreon episode this coming week is going to be the first installment of our book club, which is going to be a, every other week. We're going to be working our way through Langdon Winner's foundational text on technological politics called um, Autonomous Technology, Technics Out of Control as a Theme in Political Thought. Uh, just an amazing book that has uh, really informed the TMK ethos and style of analysis. And we figured it's rather than just talking about it, let's actually discuss it. So we're going to be working our way through that. The first first episode of that first installment 
the introduction and chapter one of autonomous technology will be coming at you um, later this week. And so until then, we will see y'all next time. Later. Later. Thank you.